Hello, you guys. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Happy Wednesday. I hope you guys are having a great week so far. If not, we're halfway there, so just hang in a little bit with me. For today's case, you guys, we are talking about one that doesn't have an answer. We are talking about a missing persons case, and this case is one where you don't really know what is going on, but everything just screams wrong in this case. Everything screams foul play. There's so many just unanswered questions and missing links, so let's just jump right on into it. So for today, as you can tell by the title of this episode, we are talking about Laureen Ron. Laureen was born on April 3rd of 19. 66. She lived in a third floor apartment with her mother, Judith, and the two of them lived in Manchester, New Hampshire. Laureen attended Parkside Junior High School and she got really good grades and she loved singing and dancing. She absolutely loved it. So much so that her dream was literally to be a movie star, to be a TV star. She wanted to be on the big screen. She wanted everyone to know her name and she just loved that part of life. Unfortunately though, Laureen would never have the chance to fulfill that dream because she went missing when she was 14 years old on April 26th of 1980. So Laureen's mom, Judith, was actually dating a professional tennis player, and she would sometimes go out of town to go with him to his tennis tournaments and kind of accompany him, and Laureen would typically go with her. It was kind of like a thing that they all would do together, but on this particular trip, Laureen asked her mom if she could stay home instead. Judith was planning on coming home later that night. It wasn't going to be too late of a night, and it was spring break for Laureen, and she wanted to spend it with her friends, so her mother agreed to let her stay back this time. When Judith left, Laureen ended up inviting two friends over this night. She invited over one guy and one girl, and the three of them drank alcohol and just hung out in the apartment. From what I could tell, they were kind of like experimenting with alcohol together. They were young, rebellious teenagers who just kind of wanted to try out alcohol. Her mom was gone. They had an empty apartment. They figured perfect place at the perfect time. So during the three of them hanging out, Lorraine's guy friend that she invited over said that he had heard voices coming from the hallway of the apartment building, and he was worried that it was Judith, so he decided to leave through the back door because he was worried that if Judith saw him, that him and Lorraine would end up getting in trouble just because it was a boy and having a boy over that late wasn't necessarily something that Judith would have approved of. So he left out of the back door that night, and he said right when he was leaving, he heard Lorraine lock the deadbolt on the front door. So now it was just Lorraine and her other friend in the apartment together. So Judith ended up coming home that night or early in the morning. It was about 1.15 a.m. and when she arrived back home, she noticed something very off about her apartment building. She noticed that the light bulbs in the hallways of all three floors of the apartment building were unscrewed. So it was pitch black in this apartment building. I would have been freaking out. When she was able to get into her apartment, the door was unlocked. So the front door was now unlocked locked and when she walked into her apartment she went to go check on Laureen in her room and she thought she saw her sleeping in her bed so she ended up going to sleep as well for the night. So the next morning when Judith went to go wake up Laureen, she discovered that what she had thought was Laureen last night was actually just her friend that she had had over sleeping in Laureen's bed. Judith woke up her friend and this friend told Judith that Laureen had been sleeping on the couch for the night. So you could probably understand Judith's frustration when Laureen was nowhere to be found. 
Even though Laureen was nowhere to be found though, all of her belongings were. All of her clothes and her brand new sneakers were still in the living room and the back door was open. Judith called the police and the police initially placed this case as a runaway case, which Judith did not want to believe. Let's say Laureen was going to leave. Like she wouldn't leave all of her stuff behind. She wouldn't leave her purse. She wouldn't leave her clothes. She wouldn't leave her shoes. She would take certain things with her. So the fact that she left absolutely everything made Judith think that something really bad had happened. And it wasn't long until police started to reconsider their initial theory as well. So the police started to believe that if Laureen left the apartment, she definitely intended to return back home. So within the following weeks and months, the investigators really started just looking for Laureen, trying to find leads, trying to find where she could have gone, but their investigation was leading nowhere. That was until October 1st of that same year when Judith looked at her phone bill and discovered there had been a charge for three phone calls made out of Santa Monica, California. Keep in mind, like I said, Judith and Laureen lived in New Hampshire. So this is now we're talking the complete other side of the country. So these calls were made from Santa Monica and two of them were from a motel in Santa Monica and the other call was made to a teen sexual assistance hotline. So this was a total shock to everyone because who was making these phone calls? Why are these phone calls being made? Why Santa Monica? The whole thing was so bizarre. So obviously these phone calls really shook everyone because it just brought open a brand new set of questions that no one had even thought to think about before. Why Santa Monica? Like why all the way across the country? Where is this motel? Why is someone calling a teen sexual assistance hotline? So when police were doing their search, they actually ended up getting in contact with the person who managed and maintained this sexual assistance hotline. And this man actually happened to be a physician, but he said at that time that he had nothing to do with the phone call and did not know a single thing about it. When I was doing my research on this, I had to read this over this whole portion of this multiple different times because it took me a while to fully understand and grasp what these phone calls were. So after this unnamed physician said that he had nothing to do with this case, the case really kind of went cold for about five years. And I say five years because in 1985, five years after Laureen went missing, the physician who was in charge of this hotline actually started to change his story. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. All right, so we're back. So in 1985, like I said, the physician said that he had a different story to tell. So he came out to police and admitted that the hotline that he runs had been a gateway for many young women and runaways to come and visit him and his wife at their home. 
Yeah, so let me just repeat that. So this guy basically says that this hotline that he runs is basically his way to lure runaway young girls and young women in to come to his house that he shares with his wife. He didn't say what he does with these girls or what happens when they get there, but I can only imagine. And he also said that one of these girls may have been Laureen because he said one of them may have been from New Hampshire, but he couldn't be sure. He also said that there was a woman named Annie Sprinkle, which is quite the name I know, who was a former porn star who could have possibly had information on Laureen's disappearance. So now this is getting so much bigger and so much crazier than anyone could have possibly imagined. So just to break it down again, this physician who runs this hotline somehow got connected to Laureen's mother's phone and just so happens to run a, from what it sounds like, a sex ring for runaway girls. I just find it hard to believe that this man and his wife just opened their home up to runaway girls and then let them go on their merry way when they want to leave. It definitely sounds to me like there's some sort of sex ring going on, but even through all of this new information and even when the police started to dig more into it, they were unable to find any evidence that linked Laureen to this couple or to this woman, Annie Sprinkle. So she was kind of pushed to the side after this. So that was in 1985, and I'm going to backtrack for a second back to 1981 because this is one year after Laureen had disappeared, but Judith claimed to be receiving multiple phone calls starting in 1981, and this continued for years and years and years after Laureen's disappearance. Judith said that she always received these calls at approximately 3.45 a.m. every single day time that she would get one and according to judith whoever was on the other end of the line never spoke any words and the only sound she could hear was heavy breathing on the other line and judith did believe for a while that these calls were from laureen herself and the calls continued for several years and would happen more frequently during christmas time which is something that i found very odd because it's not like they increased during the time period of the anniversary that she went missing or during her birthday or anything like that. Having these calls increase during Christmas time definitely makes me wonder what the significance of that is, especially if these calls were from Laureen herself or if they were from someone who was connected to her disappearance. So fast forward again to 1986, and this is when Judith decided to hire a private investigator. And this investigator actually went to California to locate the two motels that were involved in the phone calls that were charged to Judith's phone bill in 1980. So she hires this guy to go out and go check out these motels that were on her phone bill mysteriously. And what he found was absolutely insane, you guys. This private investigator was able to discover that one of the motels was used by a child pornographer known as Dr. Z. The police were never able to track down exactly who this Dr. Z was and was never able to link them to the hotline that one of the calls was placed to because my first thought was if this physician, doctor, was because my first thought was, what if the physician is also Dr. Z? It would kind of make sense. But the police were unable to find any links between the two of them. And then it gets even weirder, because in that same year of 1986, a childhood friend of Laureen's named Roger Morius, and I'm probably butchering that last name, so I'm sorry about that. Roger received a phone call from a woman who claimed to be 
Lori, which was one of Laureen's nicknames. And it was Roger's mother who actually was the one who ended up answering the phone. And his mom said that the woman on the other line claimed to have dated Roger in the past. So this is something that I kind of want to dive deeper into for a second because there wasn't really any details of this phone call other than the facts that I just gave you, which I found incredibly odd. Because here's the thing, the fact that the phone call was made to a childhood friend of Laureen sparks a lot of questions for me. The first question that I have is, if it was Laureen, why call Roger? Like if she was able to get a phone, if she was able to finally have a phone, why is Roger the first person that she's trying to call? Why not try to call her mother or her sister or someone along those lines? Why call Roger? My other question was that whoever was on the other line and trying to reach Roger ended up getting his mother instead of him. So I wonder what exactly it was that she wanted to say to Roger but never got the chance to. So then let's play devil's advocate for a second and say that it wasn't Laureen. Who would call Roger six years later, have to know his phone number because cell phones weren't as prevalent of a thing as they are now at this point, but who would, like, who would do that? Like, who would go out of their way to call Roger saying it was Laureen? Why pick Roger? It's something that's so odd to me. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. So that was a big question that I had, but let's keep going. So let's talk about the sightings of Laureen for a second, because there have been several. In 1981, there was actually a family member of Laureen who claimed to have seen her at a bus terminal in Boston, Massachusetts. This sighting was never able to be confirmed, but then later in 1988, so seven years later, there was another sighting in Alaska. Yeah, Alaska. So this witness claimed to have seen a prostitute that matched Laureen's description, but again, this was never able to be confirmed. So in the research that I did, I think the main theory that everyone was talking about is that she was a runaway or somehow connected to these people in Santa Monica and was lured into a sex trafficking ring. But there also is another theory that I want to talk about because I think it is a huge possibility. So six weeks after Laureen disappeared, a woman named Denise Denault who lived just two blocks from Laureen went missing. Ten years later, it was discovered that Denise was actually murdered, and she was murdered by a man named Terry Rasmussen, who at that point was living by the alias Bob Evans. Terry apparently had multiple aliases, and this was the one he was going at at that time. He ended up pleading guilty to this murder in 2003, and he was also the suspect of as many as five more murders. There was also a woman who disappeared on March 22nd, 1980, which is just about a month apart from when Laureen went missing. Rachel Garden was her name, and she went missing after leaving a local market in Newton, New Hampshire. And when I looked it up, Newton is about a 40-minute drive from where Laureen lived, but it definitely is weird that both women went missing within the span of a month. It's literally so close together. And although there's no evidence linking either Denise's case or Rachel's case, I think it's extremely possible that Laureen's disappearance was at the hands of Terry. Like I said in the beginning, even though there is no concrete evidence of what could have happened to Laureen, I truly believe that there was foul play involved 110%. 
But it could go either way. You know, whether that foul play was at the hands of Terry or whether she was coerced into sex trafficking, I think it could really, it could go either way. Here's the thing though, if it wasn't for the phone calls based out of Santa Monica that were charged to Judith's phone, I think I, as well as most people, would 100% lean more on the side of that she was a victim of a serial killer living in her town. And even though that kind of is where I side more on, I think that the phone calls and everything that happened in Santa Monica and the physician and Dr. Z and the motel everything is so bizarre. I do also want to repeat again and reiterate that Laureen was drinking that night and she and her friends were experimenting with alcohol and maybe she didn't know how much she was consuming or the amount that she was consuming. She didn't know how much it would affect her. And maybe when she heard people outside, she was less cautious about going out and seeing who it was. Another curiosity that I have is the fact that the front door was open when Judith came home. The friend that left Laureen's apartment that night said that he heard her lock the front door when he left. So my question is that did Laureen open the door for someone else? Did she open the door for someone that she knew? But then it gets really crazy in my mind because then I think, okay, all the lights were off in the building when Judith got home all of the hallway lights were off and it was 1:15 in the morning so it was already dark outside and it's dark in the apartment what if there was a knock on the door someone said something at the door Laureen didn't know who it was so what if Laureen had to open the door to see who it was and being more trusting after the alcohol she consumed she was met with the wrong person on the other end i'm very curious to know why all the lights were off in this apartment complex to begin with and between the oddities of the apartment building that night as well as the phone calls as well as the fact that there was a serial killer living in the town during this point in time i think these quote-unquote coincidences are not just coincidences I also want to point out that in 1985, the friend that left Laureen's apartment that night through the back door ended up committing suicide. Literally five years after her disappearance, he commits suicide. But this man was never considered a suspect, and in all my research, I wasn't able to find a name for either of the friends that were there that night. And my question lies more in the friend that ended up staying. If she went to bed in Laureen's room, in Laureen's bed, and Laureen ended up sleeping on the couch, did she hear anything? Did she see anything? Did she hear Laureen open the door? Did she hear someone knock on the door? I'm just very curious as to if there was any more information that she was either scared of telling or she didn't think was important. Like, I feel like there's a little bit more to it than she just went to bed and then the next day woke up and she was gone. In the years following Laureen's disappearance, Judith ended up moving to Florida and she also changed her phone number multiple times in order to stop the bizarre calls that were coming in constantly. So with that all being said, with all of the information, I kind of just threw at you right there. I hope it all makes sense and I really want to know what you think about this. This case is really weird because it just doesn't make sense. Like it, nothing makes sense in it. Like the order of events doesn't really make sense. Laureen living in New Hampshire and then the possibility of Santa Monica, California being involved is like bizarre to me. So definitely let me know what you guys think. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. And in that, you can also tell me new cases that you want me to cover as well as your theories on ones that I already have. You can also DM me at Savannah Brimer on Instagram and Twitter. And with that being said you guys that is all from me today make sure you go ahead and hit that follow button that way you never miss an episode and i will see you guys next week next wednesday have a great rest of your week you guys and stay safe